This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Elman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA's Lucian Harlow Dion is speaking with Don Wiviet, director of Tomorrow's Farms. So Don, uh, I was thinking we met about three years ago during Climate Week here in New York City. Uh, I believe I had just read my copy of The Soil Will Save Us by Kristen Olson and had the good fortune to strike up a yeah. conversation with you. Um, you're a genuine expert in regenerative agriculture, so I, I wanted to ask you a few questions about uh, your role, what you're doing, what led you there, on uh, the, the state of farming and, and food in the United States at the moment. All right, thanks. Well, that, that book is a good one to start with. Um, she, it is a good primer. For, for everything that we're going to talk about today. And also, uh, something to keep in mind every time you stop into a store and you buy a package of food or you buy something fresh or whatever, because the book touches on all of that. Um, I got into this through water and carbon, essentially. Um, energy, food, and um, water are inextricably linked. There's no way to separate out the three of those items. Uh, so the, the interesting thing for me was I was working on a water project on, on a reclamation project for wastewater from oil wells. There's a fellow who is an expert in bacteria and biology. Uh, he's a soil microbiologist from New Mexico State. And he is in that book. He is in, mentioned in the last chapter of that book, David Johnson. Uh, and David turned to me and said, you know, this thing is great, but I don't want to work on it. I know how to end climate change. And that's how I got into this. Uh, I had never heard anybody say those words before. And uh, <laughs> once I verified that what he was saying was accurate and true, and you talk to any soil uh, scientist about it, they'll, they'll agree that, yes, that is what plants do. They, they capture carbon dioxide, they turn the carbon into sugar, and they store it as they can. And that's a, a gross oversimplification. But uh, it is possible, and the the issue that we're talking about today is really biology versus chemistry. And uh, the, you, there's a question about the green revolution. Uh, we were talking about viruses earlier, so uh, I just want to point out that biology is really the the driver here. We've been focused on chemistry for so long. We've kind of That's great. I, that's what drew me to regenerative agriculture and agriculture at all, really. Um, this kind of simple concept of carbon cycles, um, it, as you stated, becomes much more complex. But, uh, you know, in, in looking at solutions to excess carbon in the atmosphere, I think we um, sometimes overlook the, the simplest solutions, which are simply uh, letting natural systems maintain themselves. Um, 
Now you're the director of Tomorrow's Farms and Villicus Capital Partners. Um, and I think you have a very logical way of talking about complex things, um, complex cycles. How, how would you describe the way our ag system works currently from the green revolution in the 1950s uh, and kind of how current commercial farming has been created um, as we see today and, and maybe where, where you think it's headed? Right. Uh, I think that's a great question because uh, that really was pivotal. Um, as a kid, I grew up in the Philippines and the, the revolution in hybrids for rice, the hybridization of rice uh, helped to create kind of the Asian economic miracle that we have seen for the last you know, couple of generations. Uh, food is undoubtedly important. Uh, uh, but I would also say that nutrition is actually what's really important. And I do think that the, the current state of agriculture, at least the way that we're producing our food in North America um, and in many countries around the world, that it has a lot more to do with quantity than quality. Uh, if you are looking at uh, micro-production opportunities, uh, People talk a lot about urban agriculture now, um, essentially figuring out ways to have vertical farming near urban areas. I think too that there needs to be a huge focus on the nutritional value of the food that's being grown uh, because you are in danger of having food that looks really good and is close by and has not as great an environmental impact, but it doesn't have the nutrition. So the interesting thing is, is that this quality issue is something that I think uh, with current metrics that are coming up, it's becoming easier to identify where your food is actually coming from. Uh, people are more interested in it. I think consumers are keen on knowing where their food is grown, how it got there. Uh, and then I do think that the nutritional value, the actual quality of the food is important because when you eat better food, you don't have to eat as much. And also when you look at the, uh, the percentage that America spends on healthcare, that is part of it as well. So you look at quality and then you look at the true cost of what, you, what you're buying. Are there subsidies behind it? Is there, uh, the, are there attributes within the food that cause health problems? And if so, how much does it cost us as a, as a society to pay for all this? Uh, and then that's all very complex. So you have to break it down into its simplest parts. And uh, for an audience that are people studying uh, finance, for instance, uh, I do think that it's driven by capitalism and it's driven by profit motive. And I don't think that's bad. I just think we have to show people how to make money and then, oh, by the way, the byproduct of this is going to be better food and a better impact on the environment. That's, that's really interesting, both, you know, as the caloric quality, but also uh, as a investment opportunity and as a climate solution. Um, can you describe regenerative agriculture before we take a deeper dive? for our readers and listeners? Sure. Uh, there's, people have viewed 
farming as an extractive process, meaning that um, we are taking nutrients from the soil, we're growing plants and we eat it, and we depend on the soil to provide an ever-increasing quantity of nutrients. Regenerative agriculture takes a different view in that the, the plants also contribute to the soil, the process can contribute to the soil, and it is possible to build topsoil. If we keep going at the rate we've been going in North America, even in the Midwest, uh, we've depleted perhaps over 30% of our topsoil, the way we've been farming since the Green Revolution that we were talking about. So that means that we have what? Another 40, 50 years worth of topsoil. So rather than looking at it as a depletive process or an extractive process, regenerative agriculture uh, actually helps to rebuild the soil and create value in the soil. And that's, that's exciting for anybody who likes to eat. Um, but can you <laughs> talk to it also as, you know, why it might be exciting for investors? Uh, well, let's look at it at its, at its core level. If you owned a building, and I told you that you would own this building for, I don't know, 50 years, and during that 50 years, a third of the building would go away, <laughs> how would you feel about owning that building as an investment? Uh, and that's essentially what, what landowners have, have bought into. And uh, so you, you have to look at the value of the underlying investment. And when you own farmland, when you own cropland, the value is its ability to grow plants and deliver nutrition. Uh, so I would look at that core principle first and foremost from an investment perspective. And that's, you, you have to, since the vast majority of land farmed in America is owned by third party landowners, uh, you, you've got, uh, Typical farmer in Iowa, about 60% of the land that that farmer farms is owned by somebody else. About 40% is owned by the farmer. Uh, and the problem behind that is that a landowner typically will only give a farmer a year-to-year -year contract. Uh, a bank may only look at things one crop cycle to the next, year-to-year. -year. Uh, so what happens is, is the, the financial models drive a year-to-year but agriculture and biodynamics in, in land um, found agronomic practices should at a minimum be on a five to seven year cycle, better 10 years. So there is this opportunity, uh, there's a current penalty, which means there could be an opportunity in the world of finance to create financial structures that are similar to other industries where you have a, a loan where a farmer is given something for two to three years, it looks like a, what you might see in a construction loan. You know, you build the asset, you stabilize the asset, and then you create an income stream out of that. Uh, the same thing, the same approach should be, should be taken towards land. So I think that shareholders and banks, uh, I think that individual investors and private equity that are, that are doing personal lending. I think there's an opportunity here in the world of finance and have it line up with what makes sense on a five to seven to 10 year horizon instead of just year to year. I mean, if you, if 
people, investors bemoan the idea that managers are, are paid quarter to quarter bonuses or an incentive structure. And for, for decades, we've talked about having a longer view on investing in American industry, American businesses. And the long view does work. Uh, I think that's been proven by city side and people. Um, but whatever models you see that have worked in other industries, it would be nice to see those translate and plugged into agriculture in the way that uh, the, the ownership structure of land, because it's always, not always, but almost two thirds of it is owned by somebody else, other than the person who's farming and managing the soil. So there's that disconnect. And then also the whole financial structure is designed year to year. And that's just not, it's not nature's cycle, it doesn't work. So I'd love to see some models that have happened successfully in other businesses translated in agriculture. So can you expand on that and tell us a little bit about what we need to do to switch to regenerative agriculture? Um, both if we can do anything personally, but also what how the system needs to change, maybe how tomorrow's farms is uh, impacting this at the present moment? You, you bet. Um, tomorrow's farms is, we, we really just work with, with other organizations and we do financial modeling and we also are working with groups that, that represent investors in buying land. Um, on a personal level, I think a lot of people are doing that. I think you're doing it. Um, when you look at a bag of Doritos, you sit down to watch a basketball game and you've got a bag of Doritos. Uh, there is probably uh, glyphosate roundup in that bag of Doritos. And we just don't think about it. Or we do and we're like, you know what? This one's not gonna kill me. I can eat this bag of Doritos and survive. But the problem has been that on the consumer side, that we don't always have the choices that we're looking for. Um, if you can buy an organic bag of Doritos, and you can, um, then I would encourage people to do it. And we'll say, and, and if there's two responses to that. And it's funny because they, they seem to be gender driven in, in my experience. Um, and people either say that, uh, gosh, is that really organic? I don't trust it. Prove it. Or they're saying, gosh, that's too expensive. I can't afford to buy organic food. And both of those things have an answer. Uh, number one, organic farming is mandated by a federal legislated protocol. It's in the bill. So you can't, um, the, and, and so when we deliver a load of grain to a, to a mill, Basically, uh, it's probed eight times and it's tested, its DNA is tested, it's also tested for chemicals. So organic certification really goes a long way. Uh, regenerative agriculture kind of is a, it's a broader view and includes organics. Um, and then the, the answer has been more expensive. I get back to the nutrition. If you eat organic food, you are less hungry. Uh, it does have satisfied more than junk food. And also, nobody throws away organic food. 
it lasts longer because if you buy an apple that's been imported from Chile, it might already be five months old by the time you get it. So fresh food, local food, food that you can tell has uh, nutritional quality uh, actually is a better bargain for your dollars. So that's on the personal level. And then on the, the macro corporate level, um, I would, number one, encourage people to look at biology. Um, I, I think people are, chemistry is more predictable, it's easier to understand. But the answer to all of this is understanding biology. And then the second thing would be that there has to be a financing structure that rewards investors for taking a longer risk, meaning not a year-to-year -year investment. And it will play out. Because currently, an Iowa farmer, according to ISU, that grows conventional crops, is losing about four bucks an acre. And a organic farm with a successful growing season is making about four hundred dollars an acre. So there's your economic model, and people have to make the leap on a longer-term look at it in order to to reap the benefits of that that disparity between conventional and organic agriculture. And you, you are definitely saying that a, a longer term approach is, is going to be what does it. Um, would you say that that's going to primarily come from corporate finance, from agricultural policy? or something else that I'm not, I'm not seeing? Uh, demand for one thing, uh, meaning that there are people interested in, in supporting regenerative agriculture and in urban farming. Uh, take a look at the markets <laughs> the last, you know, week and a half. Uh, if you want to balance a portfolio, Owning farmland is an excellent, excellent anchor to a investment portfolio because it's non-correlated twice over. Uh, agriculture doesn't correlate to the rest of the uh, whatever you're holding in your as an investment. And then secondly, organic and regenerative agriculture, the pricing that pricing doesn't correlate to the rest of agriculture. So you get a doubly non-correlating asset. And I think if investors look at that as a, as a haven, as a safe haven, that they would be pretty interested in. They'd be very interested in. Um, and then you'll, you'll hear arguments that regenerative agriculture, organic agriculture, the yields aren't as high. And that's just not the case. Um, I can, there's one group that I work with and they have 63 investors and you can argue, you can, you can demonstrate that yields are typically 85% of conventional yields and then product is more profitable. And then secondly, if you look at it season to season, and this gets back to the environmental perspective, uh, if you improve the soil organic matter by 1%, that's kind of your, your core structure for soil you get five times the water retention. So you survive drought cycles better, you survive flooding cycles better, 
And then, oh, by the way, if you did that in watersheds next to rivers, like New York City did years ago in the Hudson River Valley, which is documented in that book that you talked about, right. um, then you, you not only improve your local economy, but you save a tremendous amount of money. The, the federal government spent $3 billion on in and around the Midwest. So you can make the economic case to the Congressional Budget Office that if you improve soil, then it has a direct economic impact for the taxpayer and also offers better returns for investors. Well, thank you for bringing up the Congressional Budget Office. Um, I know that politics sometimes informs agricultural policy, but right. I think you know some of what you've talked about, and I think what's more interesting is where there is bipartisan agreement, because this is an issue that affects all of us. Um, are you seeing any interesting coalitions form uh, with the people you work with in Iowa that might surprise people or kind of inform? Yeah, yeah I, I see it not only in Iowa, but I see it like the, the Kivera coalition out in Mexico, which is you know potentially tree huggers and ranchers that have common ground. Um, and for me personally, uh, I have seen efforts to monetize carbon capture uh, derailed by critics because the metrics are to be debated or difficult. So what I'm proposing is a tax credit for improving soil as measured by an increase in soil organic matter. And so it's I get farmers that way, we get landowners, uh, we get both sides of the aisle politically because tax credits for improving small businesses is kind of universally acceptable. Um, and then a byproduct of that will be environmental benefit and mitigation and improvement of watershed. So I think what where you can you can find the political energy to coalesce around a core concept, you, you have to keep it pretty simple. And improving soil is a little bit like apple pie. Everybody can agree with that, regardless of which side of the aisle. So I would be happy to talk to politicians about that. And um, there's a lot of people that are hung up on the metrics behind carbon capture. But this system basically creates carbon capture as a byproduct. That's great. And to bring it back to the farmers, because they're obviously a, a crucial part of, you know, improving farmland. Uh, how do farmers think about weather, weather patterns that might be different from the rest of us? How can we understand the challenges that they face as well? <laughs> well, the weather lands on their head. Um, the, the, the problem with the Green Revolution and kind of the you know, big business being behind agriculture, and big, big capital, big money, and basically the concentration of it is that system, this system, has succeeded in placing all of the risk on the farm. Um, the, the folks that are intermediaries, the buy and sell crops, uh, 
they can navigate fluctuation. You know, they either pay a little bit more and sell it for more, or they pay a little less and sell it for a little less. Uh, all of the intermediaries and the people that are selling the inputs do fine. But what happens is, is that the weather patterns have a direct impact on performance. Basically, uh, anything that looks like a, a, a pest or anything that looks like it's uh, going to be uh, some, type, some type of sporadic event always lands squarely on the farmer. There is crop insurance, but farmers have to be able to make a living. Um, crop insurance is a safety net. It covers your downside. Uh, but when you have a, a increasingly an increasing amount of rain in the spring, an increasing amount of rain during the harvest in the fall, and then you have kind of a, a drought cycle in between. Uh, you've mentioned this, that it's 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 sensitive. You know, climatic changes, weather patterns are you know, farming is very sensitive to that. And they are changing. Um politically, um some of us are not allowed to call it climate change, so we just talk about weather patterns. Uh, sometimes politically, you're not allowed to talk about carbon sequestration, so let's just talk about improving the soil. I really don't care. I, I think it's a shame that this has been politicized uh, because you talk to a farmer, regardless of their, their affiliation, they all have common issues that they're concerned about. And Weather patterns is always been part and parcel of the climate. Uh, yeah. The depletion of soil is a concern to them. The you know the, the fact that their profits have been decimated because everything's been turned into a commodity. All of those things have a direct impact on our communities and collectively. So as they are impacted, uh, can you speak to how farmers make a profit with your company, and can you share some successes? Sure. Um, the, the some of the folks that I work with, like my my business is Tomorrow's Farms, and then I work with other companies. Um, I'm affiliated with company, with other businesses like Billicus, um, but Billicus has been in business a lot longer than I have. Um, there are it's an example where converting farmland has been a, a benefit to the individual farmers and the investors. Um, the investors have a, a like I said, a, a non-correlating asset that provides them with a hedge. If, if they're investing in tech, it means they have something that anchors the rest of their portfolio. Um, it also means, quite frankly, if the world goes to hell, then they own farmland. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's not bad. Uh, for farmers, the 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 value of organic product has always been almost double that of conventional product. So um, if you're selling to General Mills or you're selling to local farmers market, um, almost anybody, you do get a premium for selling to you know, raising organic crops. So um, this one-to-one -one connection between individual investors where they invest directly with a farmer, uh, it's matchmaking. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a way to personalize it. 
uh, and that has been very successful doing that. Uh, in other places, there are funds where you have pooled capital and pooled investment into a variety of assets. Um, but I don't know that there is the same path for the individual farmers on, on the funds to wind up owning farmland. And uh, the, the most successful programs that I have seen have been a path for farm ownership. The second thing that I'm seeing now, which is not happening in the past, is we're looking at starting an operations business. Uh, when, if we have the, sometimes it doesn't make sense to buy land because it's just too expensive. And we want to create an organic hub in a certain geography because it's a good place to grow organic food, but it may not be happening. One way to prompt that is we are starting a master and apprentice training program. And then that would dovetail in with an ops team where we would have a, a, an operating company that looks like a service business, acts like it, where the participants in it share in the profits. And uh, we would have the ability to compete against some industrial operators for doing large tracts of land and converting it to a game. Fantastic. I would love to see that happen. Um, so to round this out, I'm going to ask you the big questions now. Um, okay. Don, what, what do you see as the biggest sustainability challenge we have to take on during 2020? What, what I saw back in 2008, 2009 was the, I, I watched the environment take a hit because uh, energy prices were cheaper, so people were burning more carbon. and Frankly, if people are worried about where their next paycheck is going to come from or just getting food on the table, they're not going to be as environmentally conscious. Uh, so my idea, or not my idea, I think an idea that works is to spur the economy with environmentally-oriented jobs, um, whether it's in agriculture or it's something that just reduces our carbon footprint. Cool thing about agriculture is you can actually reverse the damage. Nothing else does that. Everything else is just a reduction of the damage. Um, but the, I think that's going to be the biggest challenge. I think people are going to be so swamped with what's going on in our economy right now, and just their personal lives, that it, it's very tempting to set you know, environmental concerns on the back shelf. So again, we have to figure out how to make a profit on it. There has to be a way that this becomes a profit center, a way for people to make a good living, and then, oh, by the way, we save the world by accident. Fantastic. And uh, what do you also see as the biggest challenge in your day-to-day -day work um, with Tomorrow's Farms and generally in sustainability? Um, I was an environmental studies major in college. Uh, I've been around environmental issues almost my entire life. Um, the biggest challenge is, is, is going to be um, giving people an incremental opportunity. I'm, I'm back to that bag of chips. Uh, people don't make the connection. Uh, there's kind of this ubiquitous 
lack of understanding of the link between soil and ending climate change. Um, and people have to make the connection that their, their consumer choices, their um, view of the world, what they put on their front lawns is all part of that connection. I mean, the, the largest crop in the world is grass grown in people's yards. <laughs> it's, it's bigger than corn so and soy. So I, I guess it's just a consciousness. It's people making that connection like, oh, this, this small thing that I'm doing right now has the ripple effect, has a ripple effect where it can really make a difference on the planet. And, and that's a hard thing for people to get their brains around. And that's the biggest, biggest challenge that I see is people just not making the connection between personal responsibility, taking, making a personal choice and how much impact that has on the country. How is, have things changed, if at all, um, for your work? I mean, it's been very, this is all relatively new, but how have things changed in light of the crisis? Um, there's, uh, it, it impacts everybody, so it impacts farmers. I mean, I was talking to a farmer today, and, you know, flux, indecision, uh, not knowing what's going to happen next, you know, what happens with people's livelihoods. It's, it affects everybody, and these folks are are planning their their season right now. I mean, it's, it's time to get busy on spring, getting ready to to plant, and they're going to do what they're going to do. But they're they're facing more insecurity, more indecision, and it's already a job that's fraught with insecurity and risk. And this just it's just another level to it, and. I think they're going to be fine. People need food. That's the bottom line. But man, when when you're a farmer, you're so used to getting slammed that you know this is just one more thing. It feels like one more level of risk. Thank you, Don. Um, it's incredibly informative. I think you've laid out how our agricultural system can help us address climate change by reducing greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, um, but also how it can provide real uh, and important jobs in the economy at the same time. Um, thank you for carefully and, and thoughtfully laying that out for us. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I, I know that an incremental buying decision doesn't feel like revolution, but it is. I mean, your first question was, about the green revolution and this is the bio revolution and it's 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 not nearly as sexy but it is every bit as important and, and basically each person's decision making process can help that stay up to date on tomorrow's farms by connecting with don Wiviet on linkedin Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, May 29th. We'll be speaking with Natasha Frank, CEO and founder of Eon Group.
For the complete lineup and other news, visit us at impactreportpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. MBA in Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at bard.edu/mba.